Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I think what it conveys to you is how exciting it is. We are literally figuring out how the universe began, how the universe will end, uh, when galaxies were born, human beings that only a few thousand years ago were uh, walking around. I don't think we were going to universities or things like that. We, were, we didn't have telescopes a few thousand years ago, but after a few thousand years, we're able to figure out how the universe began, what the laws are that govern it, grappling with ideas as big as uh, the birth and destiny of the universe. Boy, that's exhilarating. That's cosmologist Michael Turner. We last talked with him shortly before the James Webb Space Telescope was launched 15 months ago. Michael had thrown his considerable intellectual weight behind funding for the telescope when its future was in doubt. So we asked him back to find out if his belief in the importance of the Webb Telescope has been borne out. Are we really closer to understanding the beginning and end of it all? I've really been wanting to talk to you ever since the Webb Telescope has been out there a million miles from us in space, peering at the distant past of the universe. And I know you weren't on the team that put it there, but you were an enthusiastic supporter. I, I remember reading an editorial of yours in 2011 when funding was uncertain. And you wrote a rousing piece that it was not just a telescope, it was an inspiration for young people and a powerful symbol of U.S. leadership in science and space. I'm curious to know, what did you hope for from the web? And did you get more than you hoped for about what you hoped for? Are you still waiting for more or what? <laughs> I was hoping that it would be transformational, like, like the Hubble was, and I'm ecstatic, but I know the best is yet to come. What makes you ecstatic? The teams of people who designed it, you know, on paper, they've written down what it can do and how it's going to be so much better than it was. And the reality is always better than the paper. You know, I had read all the stuff about, you know, with infrared and so the high redshift universe, the very distant universe, would just pop out like that at you. So let me go over a couple of those things for folks who aren't up to date on that. The high redshift, it's shifted because the object is so far away, right? They're moving away from it so fast. That's absolutely right. The expansion of the universe uh, stretches the light and makes it redder. And so uh, you really need a telescope that can see in the infrared uh, to see the light that's coming from the earliest stars and galaxies. And uh, boy, did JW do that. You know, it all started with the first images. 
here they are. It was supposed to be a calibration showing how they had gotten all the mirrors aligned. And so there's a bright star at the center, but a lot of us weren't interested in the bright star at the center. We saw all these little fuzzy galaxies at the edges and we said, oh my God, this thing really works. And then of course, the when in July, they released the first light images and you could compare galaxy by galaxy and they just jumped right out at you. And some of them emitted the light that we see today when the universe was only a few hundred million years old, 13 and a half billion years ago. And that's amazing. Now we can really study them and uh, measure their properties and start reconstructing the history of the first stars, the first galaxies, and run the movie forward to us. You know, that experience of seeing them jump out at you, I've tried to make that personal to myself. What it made me realize was when I look up at the night sky, I'm looking almost entirely at stars in our own galaxy. And the dark spots between the stars where all of this juicy stuff is. It's there. I just can't see it because my <laughs> eye can't detect that kind of light. That must be a little bit of the wonder that you felt when you saw for the first time what you knew was there, but you didn't, you didn't have any ocular proof. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen results from the telescope yet that have transformed your understanding or challenged your understanding of the development of the universe? You know, I'm not that smart. Everything challenges my understanding of the universe. <laughs> but what's been stunning is the number of papers that have been written, hundreds of papers. I'll give you one surprise, and it could lead to a challenge. The earliest part of the universe, there were a lot more stars than we ever imagined. And so uh, star formation proceeded like gangbusters early on compared to what we expected. Today, it's really slowing down. Um, there are less stars being born. You may have, you, you and I both have noticed that in our lifetime. Uh, when we were growing up, there were the Beatles, there were the Rolling Stones. Every year, there was a new star, and stars are fewer and far between now. So that was a bit of a surprise. It's been a bit of a challenge having so much light early on. But if that also means that galaxies were really massive early on. That could be a challenge for the current paradigm. Does it give any hints about the fate of the universe or anything like that? Um, so there is one tantalizing, if you had asked me uh, before the web went up, will we learn anything about dark energy? Uh, I think and, I did uh, ask you that. <laughs> Last time you were on the show, I asked you, will we gain anything? You said you didn't think so. And I, uh, yeah, well, you caught me. I, I'll uh, fess up to that. I, I thought the web might not tell us anything. And dark energy is your thing. So this dark is. Dark energy is my thing. You named it and are the first to say nobody knows what it is. Yeah, I understand it as well as anyone, and I don't understand it. So there you go. I, <laughs> and um, it's the thing that whatever it is, that takes up 70% of everything in the universe. And it's pushing everything apart, all the galaxies apart, not my, not my belly. Not yet anyway. Yeah. So that's right. It's really important. It determines the destiny of the universe today at 70% of all the stuff out there. And it's really weird because its gravity is repulsive. Um, I would not have thought that we could have learned anything from the web, but one of my students 
took this idea that uh, galaxies are forming earlier than they should to heart. It's not a fact yet. We're not sure that's true. And said, you know what? There is an explanation for that. And it's a bit complicated, so I'll simplify it, that uh, there was an earlier period of dark energy, which we call early dark energy, and that makes uh, the universe a a bit younger now. And when you put all the details together, that can explain getting more massive galaxies early on. And so it, it may have given us some insight, but it certainly changed my thinking in the sense of saying you need to have an open mind about what you can learn because any new instrument you put on the universe has the potential to teach you about any phase of the universe. Uh, so that, that's why I'm so excited about the web is that um, we have a few hints. Uh, we have some really fantastic results that tell us how well the instrument is working. And then we have 20 years to use this instrument to explore the universe. Longer than I think anybody had expected. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the valuable resource there is the, the fuel that allows it to maneuver around. And the Europeans put it in such a good trajectory that it didn't need, any, uh, didn't need very many corrections. So they saved the fuel to do science. Oh, great. The estimated lifetime now is 20 years, which is really amazing. Now, you said something that I had never heard before. Is this new news that there was a time when dark energy was more active than it is now and got less active? Is that what you said? So, um, yes and no. Uh, I speak out of both sides of my mouth here. One way to think about dark energy now is um, it's accelerated expansion of the universe. And as soon as we talk about it that way, all of a sudden we say, you know what? That's what inflation is. This theory of the universe blowing up, Alan Guth's theory of the universe blowing up to enormous size early on. How early was that? Um, A jiffy. A jiffy after the Big Bang. (laughs) (laughs) Only a jiffy, not not a whole hunk. Yeah, maybe 10 to the minus 36 seconds. We don't know the exact time. Oh, so really almost instantaneous. A jiffy. So it started to expand like mad. And then it slowed down. You sound like you're raising a question that I had for you. How do we know that dark energy isn't a form of inflation? You're two steps ahead of us, uh, <laughs> as usual. So I think that the question now is less about dark energy, although it's still very important, um, and more about how often did the universe accelerate? How often did it speed up? We have excellent evidence that it's speeding up today. Uh, that's essentially airtight. We have very good evidence that uh, it underwent this uh, accelerated expansion when it was very, very young. And so all of a sudden you might say, well, just you started out with one, now it's two. How do you know it wasn't three or four? So um, this comes to another interesting puzzle that the, that the web, I hope, will shed light on. Cosmology used to be a field where there wasn't much data. Uh, was very exciting. Uh, a theorist could have all kinds of theories about the universe that couldn't be proven false because there just wasn't enough data. And now it's a data-rich field where we can do cross-checks. And so we can measure the expansion of the universe um, today 
And my colleague, Wendy Friedman, uh, is the person who wrestled that Hubble constant into submission using the Hubble Space Telescope around 25 years ago. And uh, you can measure that uh, today. And you can also infer it from the cosmic microwave background. And you ought to get the same answer using both techniques. And you get different answers. Meaning what? Well, the, the direct measurement technique gets a value above 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec. But forget the units, just the think of a number like 75. Yeah. And the other method, using the microwave background, gets a number like 67. And 67, even within the uh, margins of uncertainty, is not equal to 75. And those two numbers should be equal. And so maybe one of the measurements has a problem, or maybe there's something about the universe that we haven't figured out yet. And the best explanation for that is called early dark energy. Um, And it inserts another period of accelerated expansion uh, when the universe is about 100,000 years old. And that can bring 67 raises the 67 and makes it consistent with the whatever the number is today, 75 or so. It's very interesting to me because dark energy is your thing. As a person, do you feel a tendency to be rooting for one of these <laughs> conditions to be true? Or is it hard to hold back your enthusiasm about that? What do you, how do you approach it? Right now, I'm agnostic. Dark energy, when we first started talking about the idea, actually a few years before the expansion of the universe was discovered to be accelerating, it was the missing puzzle piece. Uh, We had a puzzle sitting there. We had this theory of the early universe that involved inflation and cold dark matter, and it all worked except 70% of the universe was missing. And so with Lawrence Krauss and I wrote a paper saying, gosh, if you just put in dark energy, it all works. I know it sounds crazy, but it's, it's, it's a weird puzzle piece, but that's the missing piece. So fast forward to today, and uh, one of the big proponents of, of early dark energy is, is my former student, Mark Kamienkowski. And so... He looks at the puzzle today, 67, 75. How do we make those two be equal? And uh, his answer is early dark energy. And Mark and, and others, Adam Reese, ask me, isn't this just like dark energy? And I'm older, <laughs> so I get less excited. But I, right now... Right now, I'm not convinced. Um, in 1995, when we talked about dark energy, it solved so many puzzles at once. Feynman used to talk about having a good idea is like putting a quarter in the Coke machine and 25 Cokes come out. Uh, you, you get more than you put in. And the early dark energy, you put a quarter in the Coke machine and you get one Coke. And that one Coke... Um, Well, it is classic Coke, so it's good. (laughs) It solves the Hubble troubles, but it doesn't solve anything else. And so I'm I'm a little more skeptical now. Um, But this this idea 
that early dark energy might explain a puzzle that we're not sure is there. And the puzzle that we're not sure is there is uh, these early galaxies, too many, too massive, but we're not sure that's the case yet because it's still early. Are they really as distant as they seem? Are they really as massive as they seem? But I think what it conveys to you is how exciting it is. We are literally figuring out how the universe began, how the universe will end, uh, when galaxies were born, human beings that only a few thousand years ago were uh, walking around. I don't think we were going to universities or things like that. We, were, we didn't have telescopes a few thousand years ago, but after a few thousand years, we're able to figure out how the universe began, what the laws are that govern it, grappling with ideas as big as uh, the birth and destiny of the universe. Boy, that's exhilarating. When we come back from our break, Michael Turner tackles the biggest question of all. Why does the universe and we within it even exist? Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Michael Turner. You make me wonder, you use a knowledge of the very small particle physics to have a better understanding of the very large, like everything we've been talking about, the formation of galaxies and so on. Does it work the other way too? Do you get any insights from the way the big stuff works into how the little things work down here on Earth? Absolutely. The connection goes both ways. So you've probably heard of this thing that the particle physicists are very proud of, and they should be, called the standard model of particle physics with the quarks and the leptons and the Higgs boson. And it explains virtually 
everything we know of here on Earth, but it doesn't seem to be complete. Um, how do we know it's not complete? It doesn't explain dark matter. It doesn't explain dark energy. There's nothing in it that explains, uh, that would account for the universe inflating early on. So these are clues that we're giving it. There's another more subtle puzzle, actually it's a pretty important puzzle for us, is why are we here? Uh, if the universe began with equal amounts of the kind of matter that we're made out of and antimatter, they all would have annihilated and disappeared. And so we owe our existence to the fact that early on, slightly more matter evolved than antimatter le leading to us. So the cosmologists have given the particle physicists big clues. So the street goes both ways. How would one of those clues work? Well, let's take dark matter because it's probably the most mature of one. So the, uh, we know that the dark matter that holds galaxies together is not made of the same things atoms are made out of. <clears throat> it's not made of quarks. And so the clue to the particle physicists is you need another particle. <clears throat> and no, don't give me one of those unstable particles that only lives for a microsecond. This particle has to live long enough to be with us today and hold galaxies together today. So that puts you on a hunt in the lab to look for the particle? So that, that puts uh, the particle physicists on a hunt. For example, at CERN, uh, there was the most wanted list on the wall. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Number one, the Higgs. Yeah. Number two, the dark matter particle. Wow. And so you might be able to create this uh, dark matter particle in the laboratory. Um, you might have to go outside of a particle accelerator to, to uh, figure out what it is. Uh, you might have to build a very sensitive detector, put it underground, and let one of the dark matter particles uh, penetrate the Earth, so that gets rid of the cosmic rays, and it leaves the dark matter particles, and tickle your detector and, and, and leave a signature uh, of it. And so dark matter has inspired particle physicists to think about how to get from their standard model, which is fantastic, to their, oh, it used to be called the theory of everything that would uh, bring together all the forces and the particles and gravity and quantum mechanics. And so uh, dark matter has been a very big hint and has inspired a lot of uh, work. It sounds very much like the folks in the labs and working the particle colliders here on Earth are blindfolded and the cosmos way out in the big the area of the big stuff that the telescopes are looking at are sending back hints like you're getting warmer, you're getting colder. <laughs> um, absolutely. And vice versa. Um, I have to tell you a story. When I took general relativity and first started studying cosmology, cosmology ended when the universe was 10 to the minus five seconds old, one one hundred thousandth of a second old. There was a wall that you could not penetrate. And the reason you could not go earlier than that is we didn't know about quarks. <clears throat> and so at that point in time, all the fundamental particles that we knew of, protons and neutrons, would be overlapping, sitting on top of one another, and the universe couldn't get any denser. It was not possible to think about the universe earlier than that. And then the particle physicist said, just a second, 
these protons and neutrons are made of quarks. And uh, when you get to 10 to the minus five seconds or one one hundred thousandth of a second, uh, the protons and neutrons will dissolve into their quarks. And you can go through that wall that we call the Hadron Wall and go to the early universe. And uh, that started, that made all of the speculations about inflation and dark matter and so on and so forth possible. So it's a street that goes both ways. So sometimes we were blindfolded. There was a wall there and they opened up the wall to us and we give them clues too. Let me switch to one other idea. I know this is not the kind of thing we've been talking about and it's not in your particular field, but how do you feel about what the Webb telescope seems to be able to do and is already beginning to do to give us signs of possible life on other planets? Well, so that, of course, is one of the other big goals uh, of the Webb and where we expect breakthroughs. The big thing that the Webb will be able to do is allow us to start in detail probing the atmospheres of hundreds, if not thousands, of planets. And the atmospheres tell us a lot about the planets. Uh, it tells us what's going on uh, on the ground. Uh, it tells us if the planets are habitable or not. And uh, the breakthroughs there have already started. So the Webb for, showed for the first time that there are planets with carbon dioxide in their atmospheres. So there's a and, huge number of animal-like things exhaling. <laughs> that could be, or it could be something more mundane. <laughs> yes, um, right. But this is where the web is really going to shine. So we, we've, we've found close to 10,000 planets orbiting other stars, um, all kinds of different sizes. And this quest to find out if we're alone or not, uh, the next step is to search for signs of life. And the, and the place where you naturally would want to look um, is the atmospheres of these planets. And Webb is already starting to probe them. Um, whether or not it will be powerful enough to find signatures of life remains to be seen. Uh, but it's got a 20-year lifetime, and it's got an awful lot of clever young scientists out there trying to, you know, with one thing in mind, find signatures of life. Since it takes so long to develop a space telescope, have they already begun to think about another version of it, another model to do even more? Of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, the uh, You got your checkbook out? <laughs> One of the next things that astronomers would like to do is, is build a telescope that's, whose primary focus is on imaging a nearby habitable planet ah. and really studying it in detail. And that's extraordinarily challenging. And so uh, telescopes like that are already on the drawing board. Um, you look at the web or you look at the Hubble or you look at LIGO or you look at the LHC, and when somebody first tells you about it, you say, that's impossible. And then the engineers and scientists get going on it, and they turn the impossible into the very hard. And then we do the very hard. So JWST was the, you know, started out as impossible. 
We're going to put a uh, six and a half meter telescope in space. It's going to unfold. It's going to have a uh, a sunshade. It's going to have this. It's going to have that. And uh, that seemed absolutely impossible. It becomes very hard. We do it and then look for the next challenge. And uh, to image a, a planet, an Earth-like planet, at the right distance from a star to be in the habitable zone will require a telescope that can shield out the light from the star. Mm. The light from the star is about 100 billion times brighter, so it has to be able to uh, cancel that light out in order to really look at the planet. And so right now that seems impossible, but uh, projects like the web or LIGO or whatever, whatever uh, these these projects that that really stretch our capabilities uh, start as the impossible, become the very hard. Uh, then you execute it and say, now we need something more challenging to do. Another thing that seems impossible, or at least really hard, is to budget these things so that you don't run into suddenly telling Congress, oh, by the way, it's going to cost twice as much as we thought. You mentioned uh, the editorials that I wrote in Science Magazine about the web. And getting that balance right, most of the missions that NASA does or the Department of Energy does or that the National Science Foundation does are on budget and on schedule within the margins that they put aside for time contingency and money contingency. And they're very successful. And uh, the point I was trying to make about the web is when you're an agency that, like NASA that spends billions a year on science, every once in a while you have to throw really deep. Mm. And you really have to challenge yourself. And when you really challenge yourself, it disrupts the whole system. And it's like an athlete having a championship performance where, where you're pushing everything to the limit. And getting that balance right, I, I certainly don't claim to have the uh, solution to it. But, and I, I don't mean to say this in a um, disrespectful or flippant way, but uh, you, you look at something like the Hubble or the web that really awes and transforms science and the overruns and the billions of dollars and the time it took don't ever come to mind. Uh, what comes to mind is that this was a great achievement done by humankind and it transformed the way we looked at the universe and uh, that's all that matters. And so I hope we're able to keep doing things like that where we really stretch ourselves and along the way, everybody is uncomfortable. I apologize that Congress has to be uncomfortable. But, uh, you know, great nations do great things, and these great things are not easy. What, what, what did Kennedy say? We choose to do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. These hard projects are really hard, and sometimes it costs extra money and sometimes it costs extra time. But at the end of the day, when it transforms the way we see the universe, when it inspires young people, when it inspires the rest of the world, um, I would say it's worth it. Great. We, we're running out of time. 
And I always end the show with seven quick questions. <laughs> and you've already answered probably the same questions, or maybe they were different. But I'm, I'm curious to know two things. One is how you answer them this time. And secondly, where they are. <laughs> Here, I found them. Not necessarily related to what we've been talking about, but just in general, what do you wish you really understood? You know, that's a hard one. Um, time. In what respect? We are creatures of time. We have a sense of time going forward, time going back. There's a past, there's a future. But when you look at the mathematical solutions of our equations, uh, there's nothing particularly special about time. Uh, but we are creatures of time. So to really understand uh, the universe at the most fundamental level, we have to understand uh, time, time and space. And we used to think, Newton said, time and space are just there. Uh, don't ask me about them. Einstein said, time and space are dynamical. And the string theorists tell us that time and space are emergent, weren't always there. And I think if we could understand time, and I don't know if we can because we're creatures of time. How can creatures of time climb out of the time in which they live in to understand time? Well, I don't know about you, but you're making me dizzy. <laughs> uh, my favorite part of Fein one of Feynman's books is where he draws a picture, and under the picture he says, this is a positron. A positron is, of course, an electron going backward in time. Of course. Of course. I love the of course. He said that with a straight face. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now for the second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Oh, boy, that's so hard. Number one, you ought to do it carefully because they may be bigger than you are. <laughs> uh, but I think the real answer to that, that I discovered being a teacher, took me at least 50 years to discover this. Wisdom is not bestowed, it's acquired. And uh, boy, I wish that you could, it's not like the Vulcan mind meld where you can just transfer knowledge to someone else. And so for someone really to understand that they're wrong and, and to gain new knowledge, they have to acquire it themselves. And at best you can help them and hopefully not get beat up along the way. <laughs> That's great. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> You know what? Uh, I'm such a fan of your show, and I hear that question all the time, and I think it's because I'm a cosmologist, and I love questions. I can't think of any strange question. I just love every question. I, I, it would be hard-pressed to say this was the strangest question ever asked of me. I thought sure it was going to be one of the questions I asked you today. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Um. That one's a really hard one. Uh, you could try to break in. Uh, you could be a compulsive non-listener. <laughs> that's good. That sounds, that, that's, that's one I haven't heard before. Let's say you're at a dinner table and sitting next to someone you never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation? So what I'm always interested in is, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What are you really passionate about? What, what, what are you, uh, and, and, you know, whether it be uh, bicycling or pole vaulting or being a Formula One driver or whatever, because um, that's what's most interesting to me. What gives you confidence? 
Oh boy, that's um, well. I don't often have confidence. Uh, <laughs> I think what I'm going to interpret that more broadly. The things that give me confidence about humanity are things like the web, like LIGO, like the LHC. You look at it, and a, a lot of the news that you read, and a lot you could interpret as being very negative. And then you look at us, these imperfect beings, that when we put our heads together and really try to do something, we do things that are just unbelievable. Uh, you know, whether it be LIGO detecting ripples uh, in space-time that are uh, on distances shorter than uh, the size of, uh, of an atom, uh, or uh, building a web space telescope that's, uh, you know, 100 billion times more powerful than the human eye in looking out at the universe. Those things awe me and think, we're going to be okay. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, that was Feynman's Lectures on Physics. And uh, I read those and I said, I want to do that. And I, I want to be able to think like Feynman. I, wanna, I, I, I think I could actually figure out how the world works. And uh, that, that's, that's an easy one for me, the Feynman Lectures on Physics. Well, I want to learn how to think like you. So this has been a step in that direction Thank you so much for this time you've taken to talk with me. Well, thank you. It's, it's always a pleasure catching up with you, Alan. And I remember so well, um, am I allowed to say our pajama party watching the launch of, of, of the web? <laughs> yeah. It was a virtual pajama party, as I recall. It was a, yeah, the truth. And you did not wear pajamas. Nobody, I think, actually wore pajamas. So we were all appropriately attired and it was on Zoom. But it, that was so exciting. And so it's good, it's good to see you again. Great to see you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Alan. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Michael Turner is senior member of the Kavli Institute for Cosmological Physics and Professor Emeritus in the Departments of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of Chicago. He's best known for coining the term dark energy, and he helped establish the interdisciplinary field that combines cosmology and elementary particle physics to understand the origin and evolution of the universe. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Brenna Hassett. She's written a delightful book called Growing Up Human, and it tackles a major puzzle about our species that we just take for granted, our extraordinarily long childhood. 
It makes us, she argues, compared to every other creature except bowhead whales, just plain weird. Oh, we are so weird. And, and I mean, it, it starts at the beginning and it just goes on. I like to think about children because um, while I was writing this book, I had two, um, as uh, sort of bottomless pits of need. And I think one of the ways that we can look at all of our weirdnesses is that they're all geared around feeding the insatiable demands of our super, super needy children. Um, so one of the things that we've done is actually basically invent dad. But we have a, a secret weapon that no other species has, which uh, is, is a highly suspicious invention, totally, totally weird, and that is grandmas. Brenna has it, and why dads and grandmas helped humans conquer the planet. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.